This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. I'd like to welcome Morris Cohen, who is a professor of operations, information, and decisions here at Wharton, and his colleague, John Quee, who is a professor at Georgetown University, to talk about the latest update on some very interesting research they're doing on supply chains. It's especially interesting, I think, because it's coming up with a lot of counterintuitive um, results, things that people wouldn't have predicted, uh, which is always interesting when research does that. Um, so it turns out that a lot of the conventional wisdom is wrong, uh, what they're thinking about today. And I'm going to just turn it over to you to talk about, uh, we have talked in the past about the phase one part of the study. Mm-hmm. Now you have phase two, which is even bigger in the sense that uh, your questionnaires and so forth have, you've cast a wider net, you have more people involved, so a bigger, a bigger uh, result. Uh, so why don't you tell us about it? Okay, so let me briefly just remind you of what the study was all about, if I may. So this is a benchmarking study that is dealing with the issue of the sourcing of manufacturing in a global supply chain network. And as you know, most companies, large companies today, operate globally. They have factories positioned all over the world. And uh, in recent years, last 10, 15 years, there have been major shifts in the location of where companies have sourced their production. And in particular, there's been a major shift out of the developed economies, the U.S. in particular, to Asia, China in particular. And this has, of course, led to a loss of actually millions of manufacturing jobs and a lot of consternation amongst the political classes and the commentators and, you know, commentary as to how can we bring these jobs back, how can we revitalize our manufacturing sector, and so on. And this uh, political season, uh, these issues have not gone away. And in fact, they've probably, the discussion has become even more heated. And so the original purpose of the benchmark study was to gather objectively some empirically based information based on what companies were actually doing, not on stated intentions or not on predictions, but on actual decisions that were made. And Last time I was here, I discussed the first phase, which dealt with a benchmark study of about 50 companies uh, that were operating in China. These were global companies. And we talked about the results we saw. And since that time, we did a second phase with about, is it 75 companies, I think it was, uh, which were much more globally dispersed, also global companies, Uh, Same questions to see what was their current set of decisions, what were the drivers of those decisions, what was the expected impact of those decisions. Phase one, I know when we spoke, uh, one of the things that had been in the news leading up to that for probably a couple years was this idea that, oh, American companies are starting to reshore, bring production back from Asia, China in particular, um, as labor costs in China rise and as there's, uh, I guess, increased robotics and, and, and automation in the U.S., that it suddenly becomes more viable to manufacture in the U.S. again. But you found that that wasn't necessarily the case at all. Well, in phase one, that is true. Uh, we did not observe too much of this reshoring or shifting of production 
into North America, into the U.S. in particular. Phase two, a bigger sample, uh, a much more diverse set of companies, we actually saw a significant amount of shifting of production back, well, I shouldn't use, I have to be careful, not back, but into the U.S. What was surprising was where this was coming from. This was not coming from U.S.-based companies. This was coming from European-based and Asian-based companies. So they are shifting production into the U.S., and American companies, not so much. I don't know if you want to add to that, John. Or? Uh, yeah, I think the statement that Morris just gave was uh, is, uh, entirely correct. And part of the reason that we did not observe um, similar results in phase one was because the respondents that we had in phase one were Chinese divisions of the global companies. So they may not have the um, um, the complete picture of um, the company's movement. But when we get to phase two, which involves a lot of um, U.S. and global companies' headquarters, and we uh, were able to identify this unique shift from non-U.S. companies entering the U.S. So a lot of people hearing this will be scratching their head and say, saying, wait a second, you're telling me that Europeans and others can come in here and manufacture profitably, but, um, but U.S. companies are still struggling how can they do it and U.S. companies are not as successful? Or, or is that well, that's not actually, the case? No, that's a very good question. And, of course, as part of our study, we asked companies, why are you making these decisions? You know, what are the drivers of those decisions? And the drivers that are driving companies, particularly non-U.S. companies, to come to North America for manufacturing are market access and access to innovation not for low labor costs, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, not, you know, and uh, but the market, this is one of the biggest, if not the biggest market in the world still. But I should also say that those are the same reasons that a lot of companies continue to go to China, not for low labor costs, but for access to their huge and growing market. So the, and that raises another point that what we saw was there was no dominant pattern in what we saw we saw a very complex set of flows of manufacturing from one location to another. Uh, you could call that, or we call that rebalancing of, of production. We also saw what we called reloading of production, where some com companies would increase their capacity in their domestic country, but not necessarily shift to another market. So. Um, to answer your question, you know, it's it's an interesting question. I'm not. I don't know if we have a definitive answer as to why we saw that, but clearly they claim market access and innovation are what's driving them to this country. And you might argue that the U.S. companies already have that access to the market, and therefore the incremental benefit to them is not as great. I don't know if you want to. Add to I that. yeah, I totally agree, and uh, um, we. We, we thought that that could explain why the U.S. company do not um, benefit as much as foreign companies entering the market. And also, um, I agree, Morris, that cost is no longer the single dominant factor that firms consider when they are making those reshoring decisions. It used to be um, dictating their decisions, but these days we observe much more complexity in their decision-making and in terms of the uh, outcomes that we observe. 
No doubt you'll have all of these answers after phase three. There is a phase three. There'll always be a phase Of course there'll be, we, or maybe phase four. But we, we never stop phase in three. A, in, a, in, a, in another conversation we had um, a, quite a while back, but it was in, in the context of Japan, right. moving manufacturing out of Japan. And one of the things you said at that time, which was I thought was very interesting, is that um, emerging markets in general uh, you know, for a company to come in and start selling their products. They want to get from them some kind of guarantee that we want you to bring your technology and, and, and create jobs here and, and build things here that you can sell here. We're much happier if you do that than if you just export things to sure. us. Um, and that that's, a, that's another trend. So it's kind of related, right? Everyone, uh, in order to sell someplace, it seems like companies are realizing you're going to have more success if you're actually in those countries manufacturing in general. Well, and that's that's actually not a, a new development. That's mm -hmm. that's been around for a long time, and, and governments have imposed local content right. and import quotas and various incentives. Which, by the way, we also saw as being uh, important reasons in some cases for for shifting production. Um, but you're absolutely right that uh, countries, not companies, but countries want companies to locate in their jurisdiction to create jobs, to create wealth, create opportunities for their citizens. And they want to have access to technology. Now, of course, that oftentimes raises questions about intellectual property and things of that sort. So sometimes there are risks attendant with that as well. And presumably it gets you closer to the market so you understand But definitely gets so you closer to the market, yes. Um, so were there other conclusions from the study that surprised you? Um, I think that, uh, you know, there are a couple of things we saw in the second phase which reinforced what we saw in the first phase. I think I had already mentioned that there was no one dominant reason. There was not one dominant flow, uh, that there seems to be a complex trade-off analysis that companies are undergoing. And what's really interesting to, to us is that the, this is pervasive, that there's, we are in the midst of a major restructuring of global supply chains. In region after region, company after company, companies are asking the question, do we have the right structure? Do we have the right sourcing locations? Are we bringing our product to market in the most effective way? And they're oftentimes shifting capacity changing the way in which they produce products, adding technology. And this we saw, like, for example, technology and R&D across the board. Everybody's investing in this. So I think that we're in the midst of a period of flux, of change, mm -hmm. which is redefining the way the world produces its products. Do we know where it's going to end up? No, I don't <laughs> think we do. That's why we need more phases. <laughs> we need another phase, of course. Um, well, I, that's interesting, and one of the things that you mentioned last time about phase one, which I thought was particularly intriguing, was that within the same company, they might be outsourcing something from a particular country while at the same time being the outsourcer right. for that for that uh, that other country. Uh, so it's you talked about a crisscrossing of these supply chains yeah. that didn't used to happen. There were more steady flows in one direction or another. It, it had been perceived as, you know, a one-way flow. Your loss is my gain type of thing. But now we see two-way street. We see direct, you know, movement in both directions. And that's why we call it a rebalancing, which is one of the dominant modes. 
Uh, and so a lot of companies are making multiple decisions, sometimes offsetting decisions for the reasons you said, to gain access to developing economies and their markets, um, to gain access to their labor, to their suppliers. So um, there is no one, one way to go, but there is a lot of shifting back and forth. And that's what, so we, we saw that as one of the dominant trends of this rebalancing. I don't know if you want to add to that? Or? Um, no, I think that was, a, that was an excellent answer. I, I wanted to ask if you, it was, what was the most interesting thing that came out of uh, phase two, in your opinion? Um, to me, um, I'm a Chinese, which is quite obvious to you. So I would just like to add a few things that we observed um, concerning China in, in phase two study, which is very consistent of, uh, with what we found in phase one. So we found that um, companies, European companies or non-China, non-China, non-Chinese companies are moving into China for market reasons. So China is growing to be the largest um, market of the world. Um, but then at the same time, we also observe companies moving out of China, but not for market reasons, this time for cost reasons. So those are the companies, for example, in the apparel industry, we observe a lot of companies moving out of China. They go into um, South Asia countries like Vietnam, Bangladesh, those countries that have even lower cost than China. So in, I just find it amazing that companies going in and chi- out, going out of China for different reasons. But let me add that what we saw in phase two consistent with phase one is the biggest flow was still into China, even now, in spite of the rising labor costs, in spite of the fact that some companies in China are moving out of China. If we asked, where are you going? What are you doing? The biggest observed flow was companies moving into China. Oftentimes, Chinese companies expanding within China, we call that reloading, or foreign companies moving into China. But that was still the, the most popular decision. Mm-hmm. To, and we're talking about manufacturing yeah. here. So that's interesting also for because of market access. We hear a lot about China needing to shift from an export-led economy right to a consumer-based sure. one. So they're preparing for that, which is, uh, I guess, already underway to some Well, extent. you know, everybody knows the statistic. I don't know how many hundreds of millions will be in the Chinese middle class, yeah, right. 400 million, 600 million. To, right. And this is a huge, huge market. And to have access to that market, well, cannot, you cannot ignore that if you're a global player. And, and so that's one of the reasons. Another thing that we saw in very pronounced in phase two was that quality was a positive reason to go into China, yeah. not a negative. Also counterintuitive, right? Because Well, you know, it depends on your perspective. Uh-huh. You know, at some stage years back, one might have said, oh, if you leave the U.S. and go to Asia, you may have quality problems. But certainly that's not true in Japan for a mm-hmm. long time. And it seems to no longer not be a, a problem in China, mm-hmm. that high-quality, complex, you know, uh, Products, labor, not necessarily, you know, labor intensive, but, you know, complicated products are being produced in China at very high quality. So, um, sounds like the decisions have been made. You have to be in the U.S., you have to be in China. What about Europe? Now, Europe is a very interesting point. In both studies, and I think even more in the second study, Western Europe was the one place that we saw negative decline shifting production. In North America, there was actually stuff coming in, 
not from the North America, as I said, but uh -huh. from other places. If we add it up all over the world, we're gaining, not at, great amount, not at a great speed, but we are gaining ground or recovering. The U.S. has a net gain. Yes, but Europe is a net loss, mm -hmm. except, of course, for Eastern Europe and Russia, which is perceived to be a nearshoring location, just as Mexico is to the U.S. So they're gaining, but Western Europe is declining. So um, what would you say to just sum this up? Well, I'd say that <laughs> the, the, the global economy is not flat, that there are many possibilities and many opportunities. And I think one thing in particular that we should bear in mind is that there are opportunities in this country to grow our manufacturing and to grow our economy, and that it may be based on innovation, it may be based on different types of, of technology, uh, but I think we should, uh, we should recognize that the world will come to our door, you know, as long as we, we manage that process correctly. Thanks very much to both of you for joining us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.